Good afternoon, everyone, and either welcome back um, to our second discussion um, on topics related to COVID-19. Uh, last week, we reviewed a suit um, brought on by the estate of a deceased employee against Walmart due to a, a lack of uh, what is being claimed as a lack of controls in place as recommended by OSHA, CDC, and other agencies um, to keep employees safe in the midst of, uh, of our crisis. Um, this case highlights the importance of what each of you have done and, and, and continue to do on a day-to-day -day basis to protect both your employees um, and the future success of your business. As a risk management firm, Early Cassidy and Schilling has honestly received thousands of questions from our clients um, and, and others. Um, and as we move forward and, and very optimistically um, look at reopening uh, uh, businesses um, that were non-essential, um, we fully expect to field you know, thousands of more questions. Um, you've probably already uh, hopefully successfully navigated the CARES Act uh, with some understanding, the Family's First Act, the Payment Protection Program, uh, and, and really we ask kind of what is next. Um, new information really is being released daily by both federal, by federal and state legislatures and agencies that are going to have an impact on your business. Um, this week, what we're going to do is we're going to use the questions we received from last week's session as well as some of those uh, ongoing questions that we, we received from our clients to just frame our discussion um, as we move forward this week. Let's see. Uh, you're going to hear some, see some people from last week. Uh, Jeff Hickson, Vice President of Risk Control at Early Cassidy and Schilling, will take on a piece today. We are going to introduce, uh, there's, there's, there's me. Um, I, I'm less important this week. Um, we're going to uh, bring Jamie Mooney in, who's uh, one of my vice president partners at uh, ECNS, um, just from her research and, and just knowledge on some of the areas we're going to talk about. Workers' comp is going to be a big uh, discussion point as far as today goes. And you're going to also hear, as from last week, uh, Manish Roth, who is a uh, partner and, and well-renowned um, attorney with the firm of Keller & Heckman. So uh, we're going to start off with uh, some news that came out and a story that came out earlier this week. I think it was uh, Monday. Uh, there was uh, an executive order um, that um, came about in the state of California, which um, for the participants on the call may not have a direct impact on you. Um, but there are, you know, the question has been to us is what are the different legislatures doing um, and, and how will COVID-19 impact the workers' compensation realm? So I am going to uh, pass this off to my partner, Jamie Mooney, and let her take on this question. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Kevin. Um, we appreciate everyone joining today, and I hope everyone is doing well during this time. Um, as Kevin mentioned, we want to give you an update on the workers' compensation and how it relates to COVID-19. As we know, workers' compensation is statutory, so please um, refer to CIAB um, and CCI for references. As Kevin said, there are uh, legislative orders coming out every day and new risk management resources, and we will provide those um, websites for you. Also, um, several, if not all, workers' compensation carriers have some sort of reference information on their website 
with regards to claims and limiting expo exposure, testing, um, et cetera. So please use them as a reference as well. Um, as Kevin mentioned, we've had a couple recent legislative orders, and we want to highlight a few of them. Of course, we can't go through all of them, but um, more the more aggressive um, order that we have seen recently uh, came out on May 12th. It has come from California. And this order creates a rebuttal presumption that the employee who tests positive for COVID-19 contracted the virus at work if the following conditions are met. The employee tested positive for or diagnosed or was diagnosed with COVID-19 within 14 days of performing labor or services at the employee's place of employment at the employer's direction. Second, the day the employee performed the labor or services was on or after March 19, 2020. Third, the location of where the employee performed labor or services was not at the employee's home. And this diagnosis must be uh, performed by a board-certified physician in California. Um, this is pretty extreme because this legislative order refers to all employees, not just in essential employees, which we see in other orders. Um, it's a very broad application of workers' compensation, and it's very interesting to see how the claims will be tracked and the costs associated with this. Some other examples we saw, one was in Kentucky. Um, this was last Thursday. It entitled Frontline Workers Removed from work because of COVID-19 exposure or suspected exposure to temporary total disability payments during the quarantine period, even if the employee ultimately denies liability for that claim. Um, one more is in uh, Illinois, where the workers' compensation issued uh, commission issued an emergency amendment Monday creating rebuttable presumption for COVID-19 acquisition that extends to nearly all uh, workers. To get into one that's a little more closer to home for all of us, a little more conservative order was in Pennsylvania. And as you see on the slide, um, this order provides that an individual employed by a life-sustaining business or occupation who, required, who is required to work, who contracts, has symptoms of or otherwise exposed to infectious disease, including COVID-19, which results in a period of hospitalization, quarantine, isolation, or other control members due to infection or exposure will establish presumption that the individual's mental con condition or inability to work is work-related hazardous duty. In the right hand, in the column right to that, you can see uh, the applicable um, employees associated with that. So that would be first responders, food service, public utility, warehouse workers, et cetera. Um, other states such as Arkansas and Washington, Missouri kind of have a similar stance. As it relates to Maryland, uh, Virginia, and DC, to date there is no orders released. Um, Again, we will see updates daily. It will be interesting to see what will be proposed in these states, and um, so we will we will let you know if we do hear further on them. We do know that most of the states that have introduced litigation have kind of um, gen a general framework. 
each of them provides um, a presumption of compensability that may be refuted by affirmative evidence that a employee covered by um, contracted COVID-19 during the course of employment. Another factor is that it defines what employees are eligible. Mostly it looks like healthcare workers, food service workers, um, et cetera, and it also clarifies the duration of the application of the provisions. How, the, how COVID-19 is impacting the overall insurance market, it is a bit soon to see how this will all play out. Um, there is currently a substantial amount of uncertainty associated with determining the ultimate impact of COVID-19 claims may have on the work comp system. It is possible that COVID-19 might result in significant adverse loss development and deteriorating of loss ratios which may translate into considerable increase in overall costs during 2020. However, the, the jurisdictions that experience more favorable results, the impact of the virus of the overall system costs could be small. Um, if we see that more states um, are going the way of California um, and they are including coverage for all employees who contract COVID-19, this could potentially um, threaten the financial stability of the workers' compensation um, system. One other factor is that the insurance industry in general and workers' compensation carriers in particular depend on investment income as an element of their overall pricing model. With the federal interest rate at zero and a massive drop in the stock market, those invest investments will be down across the board. Carriers may have to charge higher rates to make up for the significant significant decline in investment income. In the short term, we do expect overall costs for workers' comp claims to rise um, per claim um, due to the increased duration of claims caused by many factors. And what's potentially um, impacting the increased claim costs are the following. Uh, decrease in claim file closure rate, claims staying open longer, uh, increase in reopening claim rates, claims in closed status that are being reopened, an increase in of attorney involvement, a loss of leverage in settlement negotiations, the permanent restrictions previously on light duty and may need to be on total disability benefits, an increase in allocated expenses, and an increase in fraudulent claims. So I'm sure many of you have uh, employees now that are working remotely. Um, if this is the case, um, the temporary and interruption or interruption and suspension of normal business hours activities caused by COVID-19 may qualify as a change in your operations. For example, if you have someone that is working from home or telecommuting, your carrier may consider a change in uh, the classification of your employee to an 8810, which is a clerical employee, or an 8871, which is a clerical telecommuter. Um, other classifications based on what the employee is doing could be applicable as well. Uh, once you return to normal business operations, appropriate classification should be applied. As Kevin and I both mentioned, um, here is um, 
a very good link to NCCI's Frequently Asked Questions. It is updated daily, has a lot of good information, so a lot of material from this presentation today has come from that. So it's a, a very good source. Will claims related to COVID-19 have a negative impact on your experience mod? Um, right now, what we're seeing, seeing is NCCI is proposing that claims attributed to COVID-19 could be excluded from your experience mod rating. They are proposing that. They will file um, a rule change for the exclusion of claims identified with COVID-19 for consideration by the insurance state insurance regulators. So there's more to come on that. Um, with that, I would like to hand it over to my colleague, Jeff Hickson, to discuss safety. Thank you, Jamie. I am on mute and I hope here. I have um, uh, uh, a few things to talk about and probably the, the, the most obvious one is can you give me guidance on safe practices for a business and a workplace? Uh, well, the, the answer is yes, we can. And there are a number of resources out there. Let's first uh, start off with uh, you know, just the overall uh, concept of developing a plan. Always good to develop a plan first. It's the you know the best way to manage risk, and in this case, we are managing the exposure to COVID-19. Fortunately, there are resources available to you to develop such a plan. Among them are two organizations that provide resources to the construction community. They are CISC, and that is the Construction Industry Safety Coalition, and CPWR. Uh, the Center for Construction Research and Training. Um, CISC has developed a suggested uh, written plan. Uh, this was last updated in late April, and a link to their website is uh, are a few slides ahead, so I direct you to that at the end of this uh, webinar to pull down that information. And much of what I will discuss over the next few minutes is addressed in this plan. So let's say now we have a plan. You also need to uh, have a person or persons uh, in, in your organization to oversee the plan. They may be a safety director, operations director, HR manager. Bottom line, someone needs to be in charge of the plan. Someone needs to make decisions. I would also suggest you have someone in charge on your job site, such as a superintendent or foreman. Uh, many of your owners or GC may GCs may require that to, in, in this case anyways. So let's go through some elements of this plan. First, there obviously is a need to manage social distancing and uh, certainly reduce large gatherings. We should all know about the six-foot rule. However, there are circumstances we may not think of when assessing the logistics of this six-foot rule. Here are just a few that I've identified. Trailers, vehicles, various meetings that we have. I suggest limiting the, number, the, the, the staff and visitors to the site trailers and to your offices and uh, uh, fabrication shops and what have you. Um, many of the folks I've spoken to have their PMs working remotely, so they're minimizing their impact and uh, 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 access to the job site. Interesting enough, uh, uh, we don't think of vehicles very often, but you know there is a suggestion to minimize, if not eliminating, carpooling, uh, the large crews that come in on the, the, the super cabs and what have you. 
uh, our suggestion is have folks report directly when they can to the site. Certainly with regard to meetings, safety meetings, progress meetings, whatever the case may be, uh, hold them in smaller groups, certainly maintain safe distances, and if possible, hold meetings virtually. A couple other uh, distance measures that I've heard in speaking with uh, fellow peers, uh, certainly encourage staggered uh, breaks and lunches. Um, have uh, one-way flow in stairs and hallways. Um, coordinate site deliveries to minimize the contact uh, of the vendor and uh, on-site personnel. So let's all move on to some of the uh, opportunities to access the job site. This plan suggests a screening and assessment model. Many of you probably are experiencing that uh, on your sites and in your place of employments currently. They often include temperature readings. This is a suggestion from uh, CDC. Uh, and CDC's recommendation is that folks with um, 100.4 degrees or above temperatures have, are considered to have a fever and thus should be advised to go home. Through some of my conversation with folks and uh, uh, some of the emails and communications I've received, I found out there are organizations, if you're not comfortable in managing the temperature reading taking, there are organizations, third-party organizations, uh, that make this available to you. A uh, few that I've uh, uh, identified and have received information on are LabCorp, Coventry, FDR Safety, and Titan Site Medics. The, the latter one is a, a one that uh, one of uh, the larger DCs in this area are using. In addition to the temperature readings, uh, there, should, uh, there uh, oftentimes are suggestions for um, uh, questions uh, to be had. And these should be, both these aspects, both the, the temperature uh, taking and the questions should be done on a daily basis. So some of the questions uh, uh, that might be asked or can be asked is, have you, uh, to the employee, have you been confirmed positive for COVID-19? Or have you been in close contact with anyone who has confir been confirmed positive for COVID-19? Uh, the CISC plan has a uh, questionnaire list within the body of the program, so feel free to reference that uh, again at the end of the uh, webinar. So I, I take a moment here to pose a question to Manish, um, and it's concerning maintaining records of these temperatures uh, and answers to the questions. I have seen Manish uh, differing opinions on this. Uh, and I've been told that those that maintain these records do so to manage contact tracing when necessary, and they keep them secured. Uh, are there privacy issues with this, uh, like uh, i.e. Uh, HIPAA or ADA matter, Manish? That's a great question. I, I'll tell you, I think that the data that's collected, unless there's a legitimate business reason, like the one you, example you gave, uh, the health data should not be collected and stored 
some employers believe that it creates a good baseline. But uh, but if all you're doing is taking these symptoms or temperature for the purpose of determining who should be admitted onto the premises during that shift, that's not necessarily something that you'd need a historical record for. But if you do, then it, I think you're right, Jeffrey. It is uh, health data that's regulated as private medical data that uh, under the Americans with Disabilities Act as well as HIPAA. And so the compliance measures that are necessary for any other kind of health data under those two statutes must also be complied with for the purposes of coronavirus uh, mitigation or control measures. There's no exceptions that I've seen permitting uh, a la more lax privacy uh, requirement by an employer for the purpose of this pandemic. Thank you, Manish, I appreciate that. So let's talk about PPE. Certainly, if PPE is required due to the specific operations, i.e. managing control of silica dust, a respirator needs to be used. Um, if six feet social distancing can't be maintained, face coverings should be used. I think I think most of you probably have experienced that uh, uh, jobs that you're on, face coverings are probably required 100% of the time, regardless of the uh, distance between the uh, workers. So let's talk about unavailability of respirators, and specifically N95s. Both CDC and OSHA address the use of respirators if M90, if N as a Nancy, pardon me, and N as a Nancy, 95s are not available or in limited supply, and we know we, we're in that situation. OSHA, or excuse me, OSHA has provided enforcement guidance on these matters. Uh, links uh, to these uh, uh, guidance, uh, enforcement guidances are in the slides ahead. Specifically, I'll address, uh, they address these issues. Uh, one, they outline enforcement discretion to permit the extended use and reuse of respirators, as well as the use of respirators that are beyond the manufacturer's recommended shelf life. The other enforcement discretion, the, the uh, enforcement discretion, excuse me, is to permit the use of face filtering or air purifying respirators that are certified under standards of other countries or jurisdictions. Uh, I have heard from some peers that uh, uh, many are, have obtained KN95s, uh, K for Kiwanis and for Nancy 95s, and those are um, available from China. But uh, there's many um, um, uh, on that uh, link uh, with regard to the uh, uh, standards and countries or other jurisdictions and other countries that you can reference in that uh, link uh, uh, to the uh, OSHA compliance. So let's briefly touch on cleaning and disinfecting. Certainly cleaning of high-touch areas, tools, equipment, and vehicles should be done regularly. Cleaning products should be used from EPA's list N, again, N as in Nancy, of registered products. Also I'm hearing, and I've spoken to a couple folks, there are third-party services that can clean sites daily. Uh, Many of you uh, may use these uh, organizations on a, uh, have used them previously and uh, may offer those uh, types of cleaning moving forward. So I suggest if you have those, reach out to them for their uh, advice and counsel. Certainly there is a need to educate employees and there's uh, certainly means by which you can uh, do so with the, again, the CIS CISC plan. 
um, certainly advise them of what your plan is. Uh, I highlight some items. Certainly be familiar with the, uh, the hygiene practices as recommended by CDC. Be familiar with COVID-19 symptoms. They, one of the uh, goals should be for employees to assess their symptoms and uh, abilities throughout the, the workday and come to you if anything changes in that manner. Advise them as to the protocols for access to the workplace, such as the temperature uh, assessments and what have you. And certainly protocol in, the protocol in place for positive tests which leads us to uh, managing these uh, uh, positive tests as well as close contact with tests. This is probably one of the uh, areas where we receive uh, many questions uh, from uh, the last week's webinar as well as from our clients. So what should you do if an employee tests positive? The CDC has guidance on such an employer returning to work. This can be referenced on the CDC web link on one of the last slides. The web link titled Discontinuation of Isolation for Persons with COVID-19 Not in Healthcare Settings. It's a mouthful. In conjunction, CIC put similar language in their uh, plan, basically addresses a timeline for isolation, returning from isolation. Uh, I will note that in the CIC document, because uh, it's dated late April, there was an update that CDC referenced with regard to their suggestion of returning uh, the time frame which returning work to uh, the workplace. Uh, the CIC document says seven days, CDC recommends 10 days. So this is returning work after 10 days or 10 days after testing positive to COVID-19 or uh, symptoms having first appeared. What should we do if an employee is in close contact with someone who tests positive? CDC's guidelines uh, suggest for most businesses that uh, we that, that employee be self-quarantined for 14 days. Interesting, uh, with regard to construction, uh, many organizations and many uh, 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 contractors have taken the position that CDC, uh, the uh, uh, contractors are a critical infrastructure, infrastructure uh, employer. And CDC has specific recommendations uh, for such an employer basically providing exceptions to current home quarantine practices, i.e. the 14 days, after an exposure to COVID-19. The guidance advises that employers may permit workers who have had exposure to COVID-19, but who do not have symptoms to continue to work. This is provided they adhere to additional safety precautions, such as the measuring of employees' temperatures, assessment, screening, self-monitoring throughout the day. Many folks who, with whom I have spoken tend to follow the more conservative plan of the self-quarantine for 14 days. So, Manish, another question posing, uh, posed to you. Uh, and, and I've seen letters from communicating to others, such as your employer, your employees, your fellow employees, uh, to GCs, to owners, et cetera, uh, about an employee that has tested positive. And as FYI, folks, CIC has a sample of, uh, of a letter in the plan. Manish, in most circumstances, the employee has not been specifically identified in some of the, the specific examples I've seen. I have spoken to one safety director who states that their attorneys say they can release or request the name to share with others. Um, they cite the need for contact tracing. Following sound of the similar question I posed to you uh, previously, uh, to me, this sounds like a privacy concern, uh, you know, certainly from a HIPAA or ADA perspective. Manish. 
Well, it is. I think that's a great question. There is a privacy concern, and the um, requirements under the Americans with Disabilities Act, essentially the EEOC's guidelines have been, if it's unavoidable and there's a legitimate business reason, then a name can be disclosed. That's difficult, however, to justify if what you're doing is trying to notify people that somebody they've come in contact with may have been uh, diagnosed or had a confirmed positive or a suspected positive for coronavirus. Uh, you could identify the team, the location at which an employee was working without naming the employee and achieve the same uh, objective for the most part without naming that employee. And so, so an employer is going to be challenged in trying to make an argument in defense of itself that there was a legitimate business necessity, meaning by the word necessity that there's no uh, reasonable alternative that achieves the same objective. So so I, I do take the view, or I am in the camp, that uh, if you just identify the crew, the location, the hours, the days where the, the, that employee was working, that that would be enough for subcontractors or co-located employers to in turn notify their employees. Thank you, Manish. And uh, I'll, I'll quickly summarize the uh, last three uh, slides, or the next three slides. Um, the first slide um, includes the CS, CISC link, uh, which has a sample plan, as well as the various tools from uh, CPWR. And also, you know, as, as mentioned, your insurance carrier, as well as any construction trade group you have, um, uh, have resources for uh, COVID-19. The last two slides have the OSHA documents and the CDC documents and links that I referenced. With that, I turn it over to Kevin. Thank you, uh, Jamie, Jeff, and Manish. Um, again, we're trying to hold to our 30 minutes that we committed uh, to your busy days. Um, for the presentation, uh, I encourage everyone, um, you know, hopefully uh, the goal is always to leave you with something you can take uh, from the presentation and put in place or have a better feel um, about the situation. If you have questions, um, you have everyone's contact information from the presentation, and I encourage you to reach out. Um, there are a couple uh, acronyms, as, uh, as our group of insurance people love to do, is throw those out there, and, and I don't know if you know what those, some of those are. Um, CIAB is Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers. Um, they are keeping a close eye on all legislative activity. So if you're in an area or perform work in an area that you need uh, questions answered on, please just reach out to one of us and we can provide you the, the link or information related to the specific jurisdictions. Um, you know, modish anything OSHA related or, or more of a legal matter related. Um, ECNS, uh, we are not licensed to practice law, so we uh, would refer you those questions directly to Monish. So, again, uh, we ran out of time here. I had a couple of really good jokes um, to uh, to tell everyone, um, which some were against. So I'm not going to tell them right now, but if you want to call me offline, I'm more than happy to share those with you. They're pretty safe. They're like dad jokes. So um, thank you again for your time and participation. Um, if we have new information, we we will certainly reach out and uh, and offer another 30-minute uh, session in the upcoming weeks. Thank you, everyone, and have a great day.